go. Daniel chapter 11. And we're in a section of Daniel that's talking about the Antichrist. And uh, we're looking at Antichrist, a wicked warrior. Now, perhaps you've heard this before, but uh, it's a good reminder that uh, you ever heard someone say, you're living in the dash? What they mean is that you're presently living in that little hyphen between the date of your birth and the date of your death. That little hyphen, that's your life, okay? And uh, so every time you go to a cemetery and you see a tombstone, there's a date of uh, birth and a date of death, and that little hyphen means that's their life. So here's a piece of advice for all you younger folks. Go ask one of the older folks about the brevity of life. If they're like most, they'll tell you the difference between your young age and their much older age is incredibly short. Life, as you get older, seems to just race by, doesn't it? And each one of us are kind of just living in that dash. <laughs> and I don't know, I used to run the 100-yard dash. Now I can't hardly keep up with my wife in the store. I said, why are you running? Well, you keep, you, the older you get, the faster life seems to go, doesn't it? Well, we could also not only call this the dash or the hyphen, but we could call this the great parentheses. Now, it's important that you know that you're in the dash or in the hyphen, but you really need to understand that, that the race you're running, it's important to know where that is, where that dash is. And if you study Scripture, uh, and those who study Scripture have placed your dash and my dash in what would be called the great parentheses. It was Harry Ironside, a great old uh, Bible teacher and, and Bible scholar who studied the parentheses that you find in the Scripture. And what he meant was that there are verses in the Bible that describe one time period, and the, the very next verse describes another event that maybe happened thousands of years later. So he described that gap between the two verses as the great parentheses. For instance, uh, there's the parentheses in God's program, the interval between the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. You'll find it in Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. And really, the time between the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God is, is more than 2,000 years. That's parentheses right there. There's also the interval between the Roman Empire, symbolized by the legs of iron in that great image. Remember? I know it's been a long time ago since we were in Daniel 2, but if you're older, you, it, it, it wasn't that much long ago. You know, it wasn't that long ago. But in Daniel 2, you had the great image. Remember that? You had the Roman Empire, symbolized by the legs of iron. 
and then the feet of the ten toes. You find that uh, also uh, also in uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8. There's a, a great parenthesis there. You find it right here in chapter 11 between verse 35 and 36. It says in verse 35, And some of them an understanding shall fall to try them and to purge them, to make them white even to the time of the end, because it is yet the time appointed. And then it says in verse 36, And the king shall do according to his will. Well, there is a parenthesis there in between. There's a dash, if you please, in between those two verses. It's an interval there. Because when we talked about the, the king shall do according to his will, we were talking about the Antichrist. In the previous verses, we were talking about a type of the Antichrist, Antiochus IV. He wasn't the Antichrist, but he's kind of a type of them. But then in verse 36, we come to the Antichrist. You find this parenthesis actually between Hosea, uh, and you hold your place there, go to Hosea chapter uh, 3. And uh, we all remember what we studied when we studied the minor prophets, right? If we can find, there it is, Hosea chapter 3 and verse 4. For the, uh, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without teraphim. And then verse 5 starts with afterward. Okay? Afterward shall the children of Israel return. Well, there's a parenthesis there. Uh, there's something that happens between verse 4 and verse 5. You'll find again in chapter 5, verse 15, and six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. It says in verse 15, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. And in their affliction, they will seek me early. Verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, Come, let us return unto the Lord. There is an, an interval there, and we could call that one of those great parentheses. <clears throat> You'll find that also in Psalm 22, verses 22 and 23. You'll find it in Psalm 110, uh, verse 1 and, ver and, and verse 2. Uh, Peter, when he was quoting in, in uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, he stops in the middle of the verse and distinguishes God's present work and his future dealing. I think I'll turn to that one again. First uh, Peter chapter 3 and uh, verse uh, 10. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. <clears throat> says there, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that speak guile to no, speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and the ears are open unto their prayers and the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. If you go back to Psalm 34, you'll find there uh, a, a distinguishing distinguishing of between God's present work and his future dealing with sin. You also find in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 26 and 27, a great parenthesis. 
And of course, the great prophecy of Matthew 24 becomes uh, more intelligible only if the present age be considered a parenthesis between uh, uh, verse uh, 26 and 27 of chapter 9. And then one other one is an example would be Acts 15 indicates that the apostles fully understood that during the present age, the Old Testament prophecies would not be fulfilled, but would be a fulfillment after this. That's the term used there again, after this, when God would build again the tabernacle of David. So it's, it's important for us to know about the great parentheses, but why is it important? Well, by its very nature, the parentheses means there is a delay. There's a gap in time. And that is when you really find out whether or not you believe God's promises. Now, you know, a lot of people are putting their faith in our country. Because our country can be known as the land of peace. That's what Jeremiah called it in Jeremiah 12, verse 5. <clears throat> wasn't necessarily talking about the United States, but people have made that application that we're living in a land of peace. Well, if you think we're living in a land of peace, that one of these days everything's going to even out and get, get okay again, uh, you're fooling yourself. You're going to be sorely disappointed. You just look at uh, the riots around our nation this past year, and it forces us to ask, well, am I trusting in the land of peace or the Lord of peace? Am I hoping that my country can just settle down on its own, or am I placing all my faith in the Prince of Peace? It says in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Well, your life is a parenthesis. The great parentheses helps us to understand where we need to place our emphasis because there is a delay, there's critics, there's scoffers, there's those walking after their own evil desires and they're going to demand, where is the promise of his coming? Second Peter chapter 3 uh, talks about that in verse 4 and, and yet in Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9, it helps us to correctly interpret the, the parentheses. You know, where is the Lord's coming? A man talked about it 2,000 years ago, and he still hasn't come. We're in a great parenthesis. Where, why is there a delay? It's because God is showing us all his patience, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now here we're presented with a choice. We're going to either wait for the true prince of peace or worship a mythical god of war. So we come to the arrogant Antichrist. Now in our message last time, we studied the arrogant Antichrist. He was introduced to us in verses 36 and 37. We said in verse 36, And the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any god for he shall magnify himself above all. And uh, we said there, in verses 36 and 37, he was willful, he was arrogant, he's 
blasphemous, he's blind, he's self-sufficient, constantly exalting himself. So that brings us today to verses 38 and 39. Verse 38, and in his estate shall honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. Now it's possible, as you go back to verse 37, the God of his fathers might mean that he is a Jewish man. But the passage is clear that this man will present himself in his own name, for his own authority. And perhaps this is why Jesus said, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive, in John 5, 43. Remember, the Jewish leaders were persecuting Jesus and threatening to kill him in John 5, 16. They were rejecting the true Prince of Peace. And Jesus predicted, if another shall come in his own name, him will you will receive. Now, in principle, John 5, 43 explains Israel's acceptance of the Antichrist that you find in Daniel 9, verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. This kind of frames the choice for every one of us. Are we going to trust in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, or the Antichrist and his mythical God of war? So we notice here, when we see this, we find out more about the Antichrist. First of all, he's a mighty military man. The arrogant Christ will be a mighty military man who conquers the strongest fortress in the world. In verse 39, you notice there it says, Thus shall he do, in other words, thus shall he deal with the most or the most the strongest strongholds. It's kind of like Alexander the Great, uh, the coming Antichrist might be a mighty uh, conqueror, just like Alexander the Great was. Now, just stop and think a little bit about some of the strongest, most strategic fortresses in the world today. Anything come to mind? How about Fort Knox? We think that's a pretty strong uh, fortress. Uh, that's where they keep all the, the money, right? Or the gold. You got to have that pretty, uh, pretty sound and secure, don't they? Ever heard of Cheyenne Mountain Complex? It's the home of uh, the Space Command, NORAD, and the U.S. Strategic Command with its 25-ton blast doors. Or what about a, a new, fairly new Chinese installation in uh, Djibouti on the Horn of Africa? These are pretty strong uh, fortresses in the, way, uh, in the world today. And the scriptures predict that the coming Antichrist will conquer the strongest military installations and fortresses. In fact, in Revelation 13, verse 4, prophecies prophesies that the time will come when they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? It's important for us to remember that God is in control. 
and to learn what prophecies he has given us. Revelation 6 and verse 1 and 2 is a passage many scholars believe describes the beginning of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. And if you look there in Revelation 6, you listen to the way the Prince of Peace, the Lamb, ordains what is to happen in the coming of the Antichrist. It says, And I saw the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, and as it was a noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he went forth conquering to conquer. So from the very beginning, the Antichrist is going to demonstrate an amazing military power. Now, earlier in Daniel, we learned that the horn was a symbol of power. Daniel 7, verse 24 and 25, predicts about this coming Antichrist. And ten horns out of his kingdom with ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now, passages like this remind us that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men. He opens the seal of judgment. So, will you wait for the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, or will you worship the Antichrist, the satanic mythical God of war? From other passages of Scripture, we know that initially the Antichrist will offer peace and protection to Israel. It's been said about Daniel chapter 9, Verse 27, Antichrist on the behalf of his empire will make a treaty with the nation of Israel. And that agreement probably entails a promise of protection uh, to return for, of, uh, for return of certain favors, likely those of economic nature. And we know that there's even now uh, a, a stirring of the leadership in Israel. It's easy to understand why Israel would enter into such an arrangement with the powerful forces of Antichrist. And with such protection, Israel will feel safe and secure. The term of the treaty will be for one seven, that is, one period of seven years. In the midst of the week, Daniel 9, 27, the Antichrist shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Uh, it's an event that will uh, takes place three and a half years, and then the 70th seven is commonly referred to as the tribulation period, and the second half of the seven is known as the Great Tribulation. So the first half of the Tribulation will not be an easy time. And if, you, if we went to study the six seals of Revelation chapter 6, we'd find that out. But the last half of the Tribulation will be even worse. So secondly, the arrogant Antichrist will honor a new mythical god of war. What verse 38 is saying, but in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall be honored with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. That phrase, God of forces, refers to a new strange God of war unknown to the ancestors of the Antichrist. Now, if we compare scripture with scripture, we can recognize that this is a manifestation of Satan himself. Revelation 6.4 begins with the word, words, and they worshiped the dragon which gave uh, power unto the beast. 
And then in Revelation 12 and in chapter 20, it identifies the dragon, the old serpent called the devil and Satan. Many par- that's uh, a parallel with many fictional stories today. Uh, it's amazing how many fictional stories and video games and all that kind of stuff seems to really look like what you might think this is going to look like. I don't know much about video games today. What I see advertised, though, is these superheroes. They're doing things that you can't imagine anybody doing. Fly through the air, blow things up, uh, and all kinds of stuff. But they're portraying even godlike qualities. Are we even now being taught to fantasize uh, or long for the coming of Antichrist? This coming military leader will exalt himself even as he exalts this mythical god of war. And he will honor that strange god with the wealth he acquires from his military conquest. Undoubtedly, it will appear like he's inviting millions of people. And then the arrogant antichrist, there will be rich rewards for those that honor the mythical god. The the arrogant Antichrist will richly reward those who honor this mythical God of war. Verse 39. Thus he will do in the most most strongholds with a strange God, whom he will acknowledge and increase with glory, and shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. We're seeing things that don't make this all that uh, unrealistic. The Antichrist will richly reward those who pledge allegiance to him. Now, the scripture strongly warns everyone about this in Revelation 14 and verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark on his forehead or his hand, the same will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. (coughs) Need to heed this warning. Wait for the Prince of Peace and refuse to worship the mythical God of war. Now, You say, well, that's coming down the pike, but uh, I'm not going to be here. Well, you're already making a choice, and you need to pay close attention to your choice. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8 through 12, foretells that Jesus will destroy the Antichrist with the brightness of his coming. But that passage also tells us that the deceitfulness of the Antichrist will deceive many. Why? because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Stop for a moment and consider what that means. You have heard many people share the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel. What's it, where's the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Have you personally trusted in Christ who died in your sins? You say, well... I'm here on a Sunday afternoon. Everybody here is saved, surely. Well, we have testimony of, of young people who didn't know for sure if they were saved until many, many years later. 
Maybe that's your case too. Maybe you're trusting in something that uh, does not result in salvation. Maybe you're uh, trusting in your parents' salvation. Maybe you're uh, trusting in uh, the fact that you go to a Bible-believing church. Maybe you're trusting in a prayer that you said one time. But if you'll trust Christ and wait for him, the Prince of Peace, you can turn away from the satanic, mythical God of war. Because if you're not saved, you will be here. In Mark 8, 36, Jesus posed the question, For what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? When the Antichrist comes and gives all the wealth and lands and followers, people are going to be drawn into his web of deceit. But answer the question posed by Jesus, even if you would acquire the whole world, would it be worth it if you meant losing your soul in the lake of fire? Of course not. So let's wait for the Prince of Peace, who made peace through his blood on the cross, and let's certainly turn away from the mythical God of war, because the mystery of iniquity is already with us. We're already seeing the stage set for the Antichrist. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. You're not going to be here under the power and the uh, uh, control of the Antichrist. I trust that each one of us will carefully know what God's Word says, and we know that uh, without a doubt we have Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Let's pray.